Conversation Skills Training, How to Build Relationships, Navigate Any Situation, and Talk to Anyone, written by Patrick King, narrated by Russell Newton. Communication is everything. No matter who you are or what you're trying to achieve in your life, improving your communication skills is a must. It's a strange fact that human beings are expected to just know how to communicate, despite so many of us finding it challenging or unpleasant. The truth is that good communication takes time, effort, and know-how. It follows known principles and laws. Luckily, being a charismatic speaker, empathetic listener, and skillful negotiator and mediator is not something reserved for the select few. It's something that anyone can do if only you understand these laws. There is certainly not enough space in just one book to cover all the multifaceted ways that communication can be fine-tuned and tweaked. But in the following chapters, we're going to explore some of the most popular concepts and principles so you feel empowered to start making positive changes right now. One idea that we will return to frequently is the overall purpose of communication. We reach out to one another to connect, to meet our needs, to express ourselves, and to solve problems. Therefore, the best mindset to adopt on our mission to become better communicators is the one that will best allow us to do just that, connect. Identify your communication style. When learning how to communicate better, it's important to understand your exact starting point, i.e., how good is your communication ability currently? If you've picked up this book, chances are there are some aspects of the way you communicate that you've identified as needing improvement. But communication is not just one skill but a complex mix of many. On top of that, there are different styles of communication. Even if you don't consider yourself a good communicator currently, you have a unique and characteristic type of communication, whether you're conscious of it or not. As we move through the chapters of this book, we'll be looking at concrete ways to consciously choose the best and most effective styles of communication rather than default to unconscious patterns that may not really be working for us. When you can communicate well, your relationships take on an extra dimension of quality and intimacy. You find yourself in conflict far less often, and you give yourself the gift of being seen and understood so that other people have the best possible chance of meeting your needs. But without good communication, everything, relationships, work, conflict resolution, becomes much, much harder, if not impossible. Before we learn the best ways to communicate, let's ask ourselves, how do we communicate right now? Take a look at the following communication style profiles and see if you can recognize yourself in one or more of them. The Passive Communicator For this communicator, it's all about what isn't said. 
Passive communication avoids expressing needs and wants, avoids conflict, and doesn't directly or obviously convey thoughts or feelings. Imagine two friends going out for a drink. The first asks the second where he'd like to go. The second says, oh, I don't mind. You choose somewhere. The first does choose somewhere, and the second doesn't actually like it, but doesn't say so. Instead, he gets quietly annoyed and resentful. When the first friend asks what's wrong, the second says, oh, nothing, I'm fine, while very obviously not being fine. At the end of the evening, things come to a head, and the passive friend has an emotional outburst, snapping rudely. Immediately he apologizes and acts submissive and guilty. He goes home wondering how he keeps ending up in such emotionally fraught situations when he works so hard to avoid confrontation. Sound familiar? You might have a passive communication style. People who communicate this way may have learned in early childhood experiences that it is not possible to ever express their feelings directly, or that they may as well not ask for what they want, since they have no real chance of getting it. Think of it this way. A passive communication style usually exists because, at some point, and in some way, it works. However, it usually creates more problems in the long run. And if you've ever dealt with a passive communicator, you'll know that it actually undermines how much genuine connection there can be. If you suspect this is your default communication mode, take a look at some other clues. You apologize for expressing yourself or sharing your perfectly reasonable wants and needs. You find it difficult to make decisions, lead, or take responsibility. You sometimes feel like a victim or like others dominate you. You often prefer to opt out or let others take control. You're indecisive, preferring others to make all the plans. You sometimes don't know what you really think or feel. You tend to blame others for bad things that happen. You don't generally feel in control of situations or your life generally. Non-verbally, passive communicators tend to speak quietly and adopt a small, submissive posture, or else fidget nervously, or avoid eye contact. The irony is that a passive communicator does not achieve the result they want with this behavior. Other people can feel frustrated, guilty, exasperated, or annoyed with you, or else they may see the passivity as an invitation to take advantage. On the other hand, a passive communicator can leave others feeling unwilling to help anymore since their efforts are often met with a passive, defeatist attitude that lacks energy and autonomy. The Aggressive Communicator Where the passive communicator expresses too little of their needs and wants, the aggressive communicator goes too far in the other direction. They know what they want and they will be as demanding, intimidating, and even hostile as they need to be to get it. From this point of view, communication is a war, 
and the aggressive communicator is one who intends to win and beat down their opponent. This can be that office bully who is always loud, threatening, and abrasive, but it doesn't always have to be as blatant as this. Sometimes, the one person in a family or friend group whom everyone is most afraid of is the one who is simply unpredictable. Imagine a family is out at a restaurant and the toddler is trying to catch the attention of two adults who are speaking. The toddler wants to communicate the message, listen to me, and they end up doing it by banging on the table, raising their voice, getting angry, and squirming around in their seat, threatening to topple glasses on the table. The result is that everyone immediately turns their attention to the child. This is the power of aggressive communication. It makes people pay attention and respond quickly. You can also see the disadvantage of this communication style, though. People may give you what you want, but if you're behaving like a toddler to get it, they may well resent you in the process. An aggressive communicator might literally yell and scream, saying, Don't be stupid! or scoffing loudly at what you say. But they can also be aggressive in their body language or actions. Sharp, sudden, or big gestures, hogging space, towering over others, scowling, glaring, frowning, invading people's personal space, my way or the highway attitude. Again, the result is ironic. Most people might comply with an aggressive communicator, at least at first, but they quickly can grow defensive, uncooperative, and resentful. Nobody likes to be humiliated or hurt, and so the result is often less respect, but more defensiveness and pushback, the last thing an aggressive communicator actually wants. If this kind of communication seems like your style, well, don't be too hard on yourself. Again, learning to express yourself this way often comes down to faulty learning experiences in childhood and can point to feelings of fear, powerlessness, and frustration. Find more nuanced ways of expressing your needs and you'll realize you can get what you want without drama or force. The Passive-Aggressive Communicator we all know someone like this. This style of communication is as aggressive as the previous one, only it's covert, i.e. hidden and indirect. Things are not what they seem on the surface. Someone who communicates this way may feel angry, but powerless to act in direct or ordinary ways, so they attempt to meet their needs and make themselves known passively instead. If you've grown up in an environment with other passive-aggressive communicators, it can be hard to be heard and stand your ground without resorting to the same tactics. Passive-aggressive communicators may use heaps of sarcasm, they may complain bitterly, and make a nuisance of themselves without doing a thing to help themselves, or they may sulk until someone is forced to do something about it. Otherwise, they may gossip, issue false apologies, 
or give compliments that are actually insults in disguise. They may engage in malicious compliance. I will give the appearance of cooperation, but actually not be compliant at all. Or be difficult or unreliable instead of saying outright that they don't want to do something. There's a devious, almost two-faced feeling to this type of communication that leaves other people feeling manipulated, exhausted, or confused. Imagine our two friends are out for a drink, and the passive one says, Oh, you can choose a place. I don't mind. Let's say the other one has a passive-aggressive communication style, and although they resent being forced to make decisions all the time, they don't feel able to come out and say that directly. So instead, they say, Oh no, I understand. How could I forget that it's always my job to sort these things out, right? As they deliver with a sugary, sweet smile, there is plausible deniability in this, and when the other friend responds to the hidden aggression in it, the first one can act hurt and confused. Calm down, it was just a joke. If pushed, the passive-aggressive friend may then apologize, but it'll be an apology with a sting in the tail. Sheesh, I said I'm sorry. Forgive me for not being perfect all the time. The Manipulative Communicator The above style has some overlap with one more style, that of the Manipulative Communicator. This is the person who uses cunning and fakery to get what they want. Manipulation is essentially a conscious attempt to control other people and have them do, say, and think as you'd like them to. While the passive-aggressive communicator can hurt others indirectly in an attempt to express their needs without really expressing them, the manipulator is characterized by their ability to see others as tools, i.e., a means to an end. Understandably, this is one of the worst approaches and most likely to backfire. A manipulative communicator might cry crocodile tears in order to make the other person feel sorry for them, instead of, for comparison, simply sharing their genuine experience and the other person responding with genuine, uncoerced empathy. They may ask without asking, or use emotional levers, such as guilt and obligation, to position people in ways that suit them. The woman who tells her husband, Oh, I love how comfortable you are with being an underachiever. It's really inspiring how you don't care what other people think of you, is being manipulative if she knows that this will push him to take a higher-paying job that she wants him to take. A manipulative communicator might see someone enjoying their lunch at work and say, seemingly to no one in particular, in a high-pitched, condescending voice, "'Ooh, that looks delicious. Aren't you lucky? I wish I could eat such fancy stuff like that for lunch every day. Oh, well.'" Manipulative communication can sometimes work, but more often than not, it is rightly perceived by others as artificial, condescending, and untrustworthy. 
if outright tricks and lies are used, the communication style can fail badly, and the person not only fails to get what they want, but they shut off potential genuine avenues of connection and understanding, shooting themselves in the foot, basically. Now, in reading about these four communication styles, you can probably see that you've been guilty of all of them, at least to some point in your life. You can also probably see that they overlap one another, and that the tactics in each style can vary in intensity. Few people use any single type exclusively in their communication, but it is worth asking honestly about patterns that you observe in yourself. There are countless shades and nuances possible when we think about how not to communicate. Unfortunately, though, there's one thing to keep in mind. None of them really work. In other words, the above four communication styles are bad, not because they use lies, passivity, or force, but because they don't achieve the main goal of communication. Why do people communicate? There are only a few reasons. To get our needs met. To share our experience and express who we are. To solve problems. To connect with another human being. The above communication styles are actually attempts to meet some or all of these goals. Usually, however, they achieve the exact opposite result. While it can be fun to identify annoying communication patterns in others, there's more to be gained by honestly asking where we ourselves fall short of ideal communication patterns. Do we have a tendency to be aggressive, passive, passive-aggressive, or manipulative, or even all four? Perhaps we are passive in some situations, and in others, overly aggressive or manipulative. For many people, they can communicate well when they feel safe and happy, but when threatened or tired, they can revert to less-than-ideal communication tactics. It helps to be aware of maladaptive communication strategies, but let's look at how we can best communicate, i.e., how we can meet our needs, express ourselves, and solve problems in a way that actually works. The truth is that genuine, healthy, and respectful communication is just so much easier and more pleasant. The Assertive Communicator This is a healthy, balanced, and conscious way of communicating. It's the ability to express needs, wants, thoughts, and feelings in a direct and assertive way without ever disrespecting or controlling the way others think or feel, controlling what they do, or undermining what they need. This is the communication style that comes from a healthy self-esteem paired with a healthy sense of respect and compassion for others. Have you ever encountered somebody who just exuded a sense of okayness? They might have seemed perfectly relaxed, calm, and self-possessed, and after speaking to them, you felt that they were kind and friendly, but not that they were pushovers. They didn't seem flustered 
inhibited, forceful, or shy, but neither did they seem arrogant and in your face. Chances are, this stable, comfortable feeling you felt in their presence was due to their communication style. In nonverbal expression, such people are self-controlled, balanced, relaxed, open, and respectful, and that means respect for themselves and others. Because of this, other people trust and like them, and if they don't, at the very least, they know where they stand. People do not feel obliged to take care of them or forced to do things they don't want to in order to appease them. In the company of a person who communicates this way, things are clear, direct, mature, respectful, and relaxed, no matter the kind of conversation unfolding. They can say, you know what, to be honest, I don't really feel like going out drinking tonight. I'm in the mood to just get some takeout and relax at home. What do you think? We could still pick up a couple of beers. They can express their needs or desires clearly, directly, and politely. Oh, wow, that looks amazing. Would you mind if I had a tiny taste? And simply don't need to control others or get them to take care of them. For example, no fishing for compliments needed because you are happy and confident with your choices and don't need external validation for them. Finally, assertive communicators are flexible and can set healthy boundaries when necessary, but they can also be open, trusting, and vulnerable at other times. The first thing to realize is that certain communication styles are simply not effective and will not get you the results you want. How you communicate is a choice. You can make the best choice when you consciously understand what you're doing and why it's not working, so you can choose something that will work. Every endeavor to improve must begin with a level of self-awareness. There's no shame or blame in identifying the current limits and blind spots in your communication style. The quality of our relationships with others comes down to the quality of our communication. And guess what? The quality of our communication comes down 100% to us and what we consciously choose for ourselves. For now, be curious about what isn't working for you, communication-wise. Think back to conflicts or communication breakdowns in the past and see if you can identify some of these less-than-helpful styles in yourself, the other person, or both. Before we continue, consider the attitude that inspires a healthy and assertive communication style. Read the following sentiments. Do any seem particularly alien to you or difficult to agree with? This might be a clue to the aspects of assertive communication you could develop in yourself. All people are equally entitled to express themselves as long as they're respectful. I'm confident in who I am, and I like myself. I have choices. 
I take responsibility for getting my needs met. I am comfortable speaking honestly and clearly. I am calm, positive, and measured when dealing with others. I don't need to or want to control others. I am more interested in self-mastery. I like to seek compromise and balance. I value my rights immensely. I also wouldn't dream of infringing on someone else's rights. Nobody owes me anything. In the interest of increasing self-awareness, ask yourself the following questions. What is my main style of communication? What aspect of assertive communication do I find most difficult? What would I most like to improve about the way I communicate? Another way to gain insight into your own communication blind spots is to become more aware of how other people communicate with you. When you talk to someone, pay close attention to how they express their needs, how they're making you feel, and how much you trust them. Pay attention to your overall relationship with this person and how their communication style impacts that. Then, make inferences to your own style. Do you have any of those annoying habits? What works, and how can you learn to do the same yourself? Psychological Barriers to Communication In the previous sections, we began by exploring people's habitual communication styles and how we might start to use self-awareness and observation of others to better establish nonverbal rapport, the first task in any conversation. It might seem strange for a book on communication to say the following, but it's true. Good communication is a natural, normal human ability and it's something that anyone can do with ease. You might then ask, if that's the case, why are so many people so bad at communicating? The answer is that communicating well is simple and easy, but first we need to remove the formidable barriers that stand in our way to doing so. This is what can be difficult. People are only able to communicate at the level that their inner psychological barriers allow them to. For example, if there are two people, and one person has amazing communication skills, but the other is trapped in a core belief that conversations are battles they need to win, then the conversation will never move beyond this battle framework. Basically, one's emotional state, beliefs, habits, personality, and general attitude to life are the ultimate limits to how well they are able to connect to and communicate with others. Certain psychological states will improve your ability to both send and receive a message, while others will undermine it. With that in mind, what barriers are there, and how can we replace them with something more useful? Assumptions Assuming is simply coming to a conclusion you don't strictly have evidence for. 
it almost always leads to misunderstanding. Communication, after all, is about learning about the other person and their message. If we think we already know all there is to know, then why have a conversation at all, right? Imagine that a boss doesn't give detailed instructions to a new employee because she assumes that the employee will already know how to do the task. The employee doesn't, and so fails at the task. Here, the barrier of assumption has stepped in and prevented any real communication from happening. But it can also rear its head once communication is underway. If you've ever had an argument and both found yourselves saying things like, but I thought you meant X, then you likely were both guilty of making assumptions. In conversations, it's so easy to assume that all the mental models, frameworks, systems of meanings, values, and definitions that we hold are neatly shared by other people. We forget that they have their own goals and interpretations of events, and they may have their own understanding that can be identical to ours, completely opposite, or anything in between. How do we know what kind of world the person in front of us is actually inhabiting? Well, we communicate with them, and this means no assumptions. Instead, ask questions. Pretend you are a reporter, or documentary filmmaker, or alien from outer space, or all three. Empty your mind of any preconceptions and don't guess. Ask the other person to tell you what they think and feel. Sometimes, with some topics, you'll need to confirm even this, because, after all, we all use words and ideas in different ways. Think of someone asking someone else to marry them. That person says yes, but what exactly have they agreed to? How big is the overlap between their respective understanding of the word marriage? Aggression and Anger We've already seen that aggressive or passive-aggressive communication styles cause upset and don't even achieve the person's communication goals anyway. But for obvious reasons, anger, resentment, or even rage can be serious obstacles to effective communication. It's simple. To communicate, we have to make contact. We connect with someone else. And this requires us to let our guards down and become receptive and open to what the other person is sharing. If the other person is angry, they will come across as a threat. And why would you ever be receptive to a threat? Most sane people will close off to aggression and disconnect in an effort to protect themselves. This means that if you are leading with anger, you're automatically creating a condition in which communicating cannot take place. Think about that. You cannot communicate with a threat, real or perceived. You can only defend against it. If you lead with anger, you can only expect defensiveness from the other person, and this gets you nowhere. Imagine the sadly all-too-common example 
of trying to make a complaint on the phone or get a refund from a dodgy company. Yes, you're entitled to feel angry. But will that anger help you solve your problems any quicker? If you spend 15 minutes yelling at the person on the other end of the line, it's just 15 minutes you've wasted, and at the end of it, you'll probably still be at square one. Instead, own your emotions. Feeling angry is not a problem. Approaching someone else with hostility and aggression is. The alternative is not to force yourself to pretend to be calm. Rather, it is to own your feelings and identify them as belonging to you. Instead of blaming the other person or directing your emotion to them, hold that emotion as something that belongs to you only. Using I statements will mean you can say, I feel so overwhelmed right now, instead of, you're stressing me out. Preconceived attitudes. Here's the question yet again. What is the point of communication? What is it for, ultimately? The way you answer this question shows you the attitude you hold toward communication. For some people, conversations are a fight or a courtroom drama or a way to prove how right and worthy they are. For others, the point is to get their needs met or share and express or simply reach outside the limits of their own inner perception and connect with another human being. Naturally, the attitude you have to conversations will depend on the beliefs you hold. These beliefs also include the habitual roles you've always assumed in conversation with others. Do you routinely show up as the therapist, comedian, drill sergeant? Are you always preaching and explaining? Or do you repeatedly defer to others to let them lead? None of these orientations are right or wrong in themselves. But if you are, A, unaware that they are there in the first place, or, B, constantly communicating with people who don't share your attitude, then you can expect conflict and misunderstanding. One especially big impediment to effective communication is negative self-image or low confidence. This acts like a kind of filter in which every message you receive from the outside world can only ever be interpreted in a way that makes you look inferior. Most of us have never considered that low self-esteem can distort communication. But really, if low self-esteem is the inability to hear a message that paints us in a good light, then that's precisely what it does. In a 1980 paper called Perceptions of the Impact of Negatively Valued Physical Characteristics on Social Interaction, researchers Robert Kleck and Angelo Strenta set up a fascinating experiment. They told their participants they were investigating prejudices and biases toward those with facial scarring. The participants were given fake facial scars and sent out to do real job interviews. 
then asked to report their experiences. Just before the interviews, however, the participants were told that the makeup artists needed to quickly touch up the scar, while secretly they removed it. On returning from the interviews, the participants all claimed to have been discriminated against. Because they were expecting discrimination, they interpreted everything that occurred in the interview as evidence for that conclusion. In other words, if one sees themselves as a victim, one can't help but suddenly perceive everything as an attack. The participants would easily say that what they perceived was something in the interviewers. But what do you suppose the interviewers made of them? Chances are they, too, could detect the preconceptions the interviewees were bringing to the table, perhaps even unconsciously playing along to confirm them. Instead, practice compassion for self and others. Really good conversation is supremely democratic. There are no winners and losers, and no hierarchy. Take a deep breath and put yourself on an even keel with the other person. Try to shelve any ideas about who is playing what role, and compassionately encounter the person you find as you find them, your equal. At the same time, be on guard for any deep-seated beliefs that have made you decide that you will be the loser in any interaction before it even happens. The subtle ways that your behavior will change when you have genuine and healthy self-belief can make all the difference in the world. Fear Aggression impedes communication because it puts the other person on the defensive. But if that person is already on the defensive, the conversation is already impacted. Defensiveness is essentially putting up a wall. Trying to communicate through a wall is not easy, and it usually results in one thing, confusion and serious misunderstanding. This is sometimes why fear and aggression can lead to communication breakdown. The more walls that are put up, the harder it is to hear one another, and in the confusion, more fear and anger are created, necessitating even more walls. A person who is fearful is not listening. They're not curious. They're not focusing on anything other than their own self-preservation. And this makes them a bad conversationalist on the most fundamental level. Have you noticed how, after watching a horror movie, the bedroom that seemed perfectly innocent yesterday now seems riddled with potentially frightening nooks and crannies? If someone is fearful, their impulse will be to protect themselves or escape, and you cannot communicate to or from that position. Imagine someone in the middle of a severe panic attack. They may literally be unable to hear you. All they know is their own crushing panic, and you may as well not even exist for them. Fear can make us see things that aren't there, and in communication can make us detect threats when there aren't any. 
So the person having the panic attack suddenly decides that you're to blame for how they feel. Fear narrows our focus inward, so we lose perspective and can no longer connect with our environment. Naturally, real connection will be stunted. Instead, relax and be curious. One way to do this is simple. Ask an open-ended question. You don't have to lower your walls entirely, but at least be curious about what's on the other side. Inflexibility and need for control. When you get together with someone and have a conversation, anything can happen. The thread of the talk can go in any direction, and at any one moment, the words either person says could steer the thing in a completely novel and unexpected direction, and this is a good thing. When two people get together to communicate, there's a chance for them to co-create something that is bigger than the sum of both of them. But this can only happen if both parties are willing to relinquish a little control and let the conversation flow as it will. Being inflexible, closed-minded, or hungry for control means that we enter any discussion with a fixed idea of what it should be, therefore preventing it from becoming anything else. This shuts us off from listening, from learning, and from responding spontaneously in the moment as it unfolds. It also makes us very boring and predictable. Imagine two people on a blind date. It soon becomes clear there's no chemistry. But rather than trying to force it, feeling awkward, or calling the entire evening off, both decide that they're still having a nice time, and why not go to the arcade, since they're out anyway and it'll be fun. Incidentally, nobody would be surprised if, in ten years' time, this became a cute how-we-met story. Often things happen best when we let go of the idea of how we think they should happen. Instead, be willing to be surprised, let the other person lead, and be genuinely open to the idea that they may steer the conversation in a way you did not expect or prepare for. Everyone has something to teach you. Judgment and Premature Evaluation have you ever found yourself rushing in a conversation? You hear someone talking, but internally you think, yes, yes, I've heard that, and you subtly try to move them along. Why? Well, sometimes this kind of haste signals that we've been too quick to come to conclusions about what we're being told. As with making assumptions, we think we already understand everything there is to understand, and no longer need to engage. As we dig deeper, this sometimes tells us that we have prematurely gone into judgment mode before really hearing the other person. We all have preconceived notions in our heads. When someone talks, we might flip through our catalog of notions and see which ones match closest, then grab a hold of that and stop listening to what the unique person in front of us is saying. Judgment, even positive judgments, 
kill what is real and nuanced in the present moment. We fail to see the other person and their message and instead substitute it with our idea of who they are and what they're saying. This is the root of prejudice and bias. If we are interacting with two-dimensional stereotypes of people and not real people, then our communication is always going to be lacking. Psychologist So it seems like you have a lot of resentment toward your mother. Patient Well, no, not really. But I do think something changed when my brother was born and... So the problem is your brother. In this exchange, the psychologist has already come to a conclusion, and they're not really interested in gathering any more data. They have a hammer, i.e., everyone has an issue with at least one family member, and they're going to look at everything like it's a nail. Instead, cultivate wonder. This may be the hardest mindset shift of all, but to become a genuinely good communicator, you need to maintain a sense not just of curiosity or interest in another person, but of near-continuous awe at what a privilege it really is to step outside your own head for a moment and step into someone else's. In the remainder of this book, we will take, as a starting point, the value that communication is a way to create connection. We label anything that gets in the way of this connection as a psychological barrier and work to remove it. Are there other barriers than the ones listed above? Definitely. We can point to an attitude of distraction and inattention, lack of trust, cross-cultural limitations, and even exhaustion as things that prevent people from properly connecting. Whatever they are, though, with self-awareness and practice, we can work to lessen their impact on us. Other bad communication habits to avoid. Maybe you read the previous descriptions of barriers to communication and thought it all sounded a little serious. Perhaps you are simply looking for ways to improve everyday conversation and not necessarily become a master at juggling the deep and meaningful stuff. However, even if you are, on the whole, a flexible, open-minded, and non-judgmental communicator, you may still fall into the common habitual conversational traps that plague the best of us. That's because the biggest barrier to excellent communication is all those small, mindless, and automatic acts that erode trust and connection. Granted, these conversational habits don't mean that you have psychological issues with prejudice or a deep-seated need for control, but, in a way, knee-jerk habits like these are worse because they're usually invisible, unconscious, and may even be encouraged by your general environment. Before we take an earnest look at what we should be doing to become better communicators, let's explore a few more things not to do. Human life is largely comprised of conversations. Every relationship, 
every human interaction, every job, everything at some point requires you to encounter and engage with another human being. And whether you fancy yourself a world-class communicator or would sooner send an email than deal with face-to-face discussion, chances are you have at least a few terrible communication habits that drive people nuts. Yes, even you. Now, the following habits won't cause major blowouts or serious miscommunication, and they're not the end of the world, but they're good, low-hanging fruit to begin with as we embark on sharpening our communication skills. Constantly interrupting. Maybe you interrupt because you're excited by what the other person just said. You simply have to interject and say your thing. Maybe you interrupt because unconsciously you think that what you have to say is more urgent or more important. Maybe you're doing it because you're rushing the conversation along, having already jumped to conclusions about what the other person means and made your judgments about it. In any case, it doesn't matter why you do it, only that it makes the other person feel awful. It's understandable. You want to be heard, but so do they. Take it a step further and don't even think about interrupting. You know what this means. When you are suddenly more interested in your own response to what's being said than listening to what's being said, it shows. The other person can tell that your attention has suddenly moved inward and you are preparing a response. A good habit is this. After someone stops speaking, pause, and count slowly to three in your head. This sends the message, I'm here, I'm paying attention, and I care about what you have to say. And lets the other person know they don't have to rush to get a word in and that you are respectful enough to pause to process what they're saying. Multitasking A conversation merits more than the few glances you can muster when you finally tear your eyes away from your iPhone. We are probably all guilty of the practice of multitasking, at least occasionally, No matter how insignificant or pointless your interactions may appear, you must be there for them. In other words, you can't mindlessly check your phone or run through your grocery list. Pay close attention to the people you're talking to. Using qualifiers. Not to be rude or offensive, but... This could be a horrible idea, but... I know what you're thinking, but... Qualifiers, i.e. little expressions said before or after a statement with the intention of softening or mitigating that statement, certainly have their place. Overusing them, though, can be pretty annoying. Why? In the right circumstances, they can come across as condescending and unneeded. Remember the manipulative communication style? Nobody wants to feel like they're being managed or handled. If you go to great lengths to use qualifiers, 
it may stir up feelings of mistrust in your listener who could wonder why you're not just being direct. Remind yourself that the word but is kind of magical. People tend to discount everything that came before that word. It's yet another barrier, albeit one that is mostly just annoying. Equating Your Experiences In Chapter 4, we'll look more closely at mastering the emotional aspects of effective communication. But for now, it's enough to banish this single, meaningless phrase from your repertoire. I know exactly how you feel. It's even worse if you then proceed to tell a lengthy story about a time when you felt similarly despite the fact that the two situations are completely dissimilar. Keep in mind that every person's journey is unique. It's good that you're making an effort to be empathetic, but think about it from the other side. Has hearing about someone else's hard time ever made you feel less unhappy about your own troubles? Probably not. Whether you can understand another person's experiences or not, is irrelevant. Almost always, it will not feel good for them to hear it. Floundering We've all encountered people who ramble on without a point, as though they like the sound of their own voices. If you have a tendency to do this yourself, constantly try to remember how mind-numbing it is to be on the receiving end. Floundering and waffling on and on is usually a bad habit we get into when we're nervous or unconsciously afraid that something bad will happen unless we keep performing and filling the silence. But like every other poor communication strategy listed here, it doesn't work. The more we talk, the less people listen. Think carefully. Say what you need to say, and be straightforward and succinct when you talk. Have faith that you've been heard, and if you haven't been heard, just let it go, because it's likely that you would not have convinced anyone to care or understand simply by going on ad nauseum. Waiting instead of listening. Everyone knows they should be a good listener. To be honest, most of us are better at acting the role of good listener than actually being one. Rather than listening with all our attention to what we're told, we're really just waiting our turn. Worse, we might be listening with an agenda, discarding what doesn't fit the agenda, hearing what we like, and spending the next few minutes drafting a witty response just as soon as the other person stops talking. If this is a bad habit to break, remind yourself of the fact that people can usually tell when you're not listening. It's not easy to hide, and it makes you appear selfish, disinterested, and unkind. Fluff and Filler Words Padding out your speech with filler words may be more or less acceptable depending on your age, culture, and social situation, but it's almost always better to avoid it entirely. 
Filler words are things like um, ah, uh, okay, like, you know, you see, uh, right, kinda, so, actually, er, hmm, and so on. You may, in fact, have your own personal verbal tick. For example, some people have a strange habit of ending every sentence with a dangling so that doesn't go anywhere. Others will liberally sprinkle like or um everywhere. Still, others will have overused turns of phrase that add nothing at all to the message. For example, the woman who ends every simple phrase with, if that makes sense, or the guy who cannot open his mouth without saying, yeah, well, try this challenge for yourself. Once you've identified your own pet filler words, try to consciously replace them with plain old silence. Just say nothing and pause until you can say something that isn't a filler word. If you can be mindful enough to do this in the moment, you may be surprised at just how polished and put together you come across. You don't have to say anything profound. Just remove the filler words and you automatically seem more self-assured, authoritative, and sophisticated. Note, of course, that if you deliberately don't want to appear that way, then ignore this advice. So, interrupting, being distracted, trying to make every conversation about you, all these smaller conversation-killing habits are actually expressions of one deeper, bigger problem— conversational narcissism. We are all guilty of this to some extent. A conversation is about two people. Even beyond that, a good conversation is one where both people have actively participated and both have connected with one another. That simply means that to the extent you are focusing only on yourself, the conversation will be lacking somehow. The more you can focus on the other person, the better the conversation will be. This realization seems pretty obvious on the face of it. You look around, and you'll notice that almost all cases of miscommunication or failed connection come from, in one way or another, conversational narcissism. Whether the obstacles are psychological, behavioral, or just bad habits we've fallen into, if they put us at the center and cause us to forget the other person and their perspective, then our communication will never be everything it has the potential to be. The Rapport Game Imagine you're sitting across the street from a cafe and watching three tables, each with two people having a conversation. At table A, both people are leaning in together, seemingly mocking, seemingly mimicking one another's facial expressions and hand gestures, while at table B, the people talking are looking very serious and low energy. But they've both leaned back in their chairs and, just like table A, seem to be mirroring one another's behavior. Table C is different. One person is seemingly excited and smiling, while the other is calmer, 
speaking less, and adopting a completely different posture and facial expression. Without knowing anything about the content of the conversation, you can probably tell, even from afar, which conversations are going well and which one isn't. That's because at its most fundamental, good communication is not about the words you say, but the degree of concordance, harmony, and synchronicity between you and the person you're talking to. So this is exactly our next pit stop on our journey to becoming better communicators. Mirroring and matching. Have you ever actually wondered what chemistry is? That fizzle of energy and connection between two people is something that's difficult to describe, but you definitely know it when you feel it. However mysterious it feels, this chemistry is actually well explained as an evolutionary adaptation that has helped our species bond, connect, and establish trust, even before we developed verbal language. Mirroring and matching doesn't need much explanation. You've seen it with your own eyes. When we match and mirror, we mimic not just what others say, but how they say it, the words they use, their accents, turns of phrase, gestures, posture, voice tone, pitch and volume, and facial expressions. Here's the thing. We all instinctively know how to mirror and match. It's just that the more charismatic among us know how to do it deliberately. In the 1970s, Richard Bandler and John Grinder introduced a communication theory called Neurolinguistic Programming, NLP. They claimed that most people tend to feel happier and more comfortable around those who are similar to them, even if this recognition of similarity is largely unconscious. Have you ever noticed two people get together for the first time and immediately start to look for things in common between them? They may smile as they both realize they grew up in the same area or like the same shows when they were kids, or both indirectly know the same people. As they do this, they may start to reflect and mimic one another, matching the other's tone of voice, hand movements, and other idiosyncrasies. It's as though the more similar we feel to the person in front of us, the more we feel that they can hear and understand us, and the more we trust and like them. Mirroring is copying and reflecting a behavior in the same moment. So they smile and you smile. They whisper, and so do you. Done right, it creates feelings of harmony and synchrony, like you're both doing a coordinated dance in time with one another. Matching is copying and reflecting, but not necessarily at the same time. So perhaps they use an unusual or noteworthy turn of phrase, which you remember and return to later in the conversation, almost literally communicating, I speak the same language as you. The wonderful thing is that mirroring and matching can create strong feelings of harmony and connection even without you saying a word. It's difficult to estimate just how much communication is nonverbal, 
but it's clear that the proportion is significant. Whether you're meeting someone new, talking to an old friend, or trying to navigate a prickly conflict, matching and mirroring is a great skill to master since it always gives you a solid base on which to build. There are three main ways to build rapport by using matching and mirroring. Way 1. Match and mirror external communication cues. Body language and nonverbal communication are prior to verbal communication. If you adopt the same posture as the person in front of you, you duplicate their experience in your own body and can understand more about their position, literally. You also communicate that you're on the same wavelength and will create feelings of being in sync. In conversation, simply notice how open or closed body language as a whole seems. Look for tension, crossed arms, hunched posture, closed fists, frowning, or relaxation, open arms, expressive hands, legs uncrossed. Without aping them very obviously, try to match this degree of openness or closedness. Next, notice gestures, i.e., body postures in motion. Are they moving quickly or slowly? Are they graceful and flowing or sharp and staccato? Wide and expansive, fidgety, protective, restrained? How do the gestures line up with everything else in the conversation? Match and mirror this. You can also match and mirror facial expressions. In fact, you might find you do this automatically just by paying close attention to the other person. You could focus on just one most notable aspect, for example, the eyebrows or corners of the mouth. Again, see if you can match the position, movement, and degree of openness or closedness here, especially at points in the conversation when emotional content is being communicated. You could say, I know how you feel, but when your facial expression matches theirs, you're doing something more powerful. You're showing that you understand what they mean. Way 2. Match and mirror voice and language. This is a rich area to tap. Consider all the aspects of the voice that have nothing to do with the words used. Tone rate or speed, volume, both loudness and simply the amount of speech, pitch, how high or low, pace, inflection and modulation, how you deliver your sentences and the flow of speech, for example, with lots of variation or with a steady, even monotone. You can match and mirror on any of the five above aspects or potentially all of them. The key, however, is to do it subtly and naturally. For example, if the person you're speaking to is talking quickly, fast rate, speaking quite loudly, high volume, and in a high pitch, and talking with an excitable and highly inflected tone, then you can signal your empathy and understanding of their frame of mind by mimicking some of this yourself you could subtly raise your own pitch, 
talking a little louder than you ordinarily would, and mirror that excitement back at them. Overall, you're attempting to match the energy of what they're communicating. Just remember that the voice is a part of the body, so every aspect of the voice is essentially body language. One thing you might not have considered is what communication experts call sensory predicates. Basically, these are systems of meaning that we use to explain our experiences. We each have a system, whether we're aware of it or not. I.e., we might favor descriptions and explanations that are visual, auditory, kinesthetic, feeling, auditory digital, A few examples will show how sensory predicates play out in real life. A visual predicate, for example, uses language, symbolism, and metaphors that are based in the physiology of sight. So you might pepper your speech with terms like picture this, look, view, bright, reveal, short-sighted, paint a picture, I can see, clear, dim, etc. Similarly, more auditory, to do with sound predicates, will include phrases like listen, tell, clear as a bell, on the same frequency, lend me your ears, strike a note, loud and clear, etc. Kinesthetic and feeling predicates may overlap somewhat and mix both meanings of the word feel. For example, I'm touched, concrete, solid, hot and bothered, get in touch, handhold, grasp, make contact, etc. So-called auditory digital predicates are more focused on the cognitive experience of the world. For example, with terms like understand, know, think, process, figure it out, pay attention, wonder, etc. The point of understanding the predicates someone uses is so that you can match and mirror these, too. The result can be an instant connection of feeling and rapport. For example, if someone consistently uses visual predicates, they may say, I like the look of this idea. You've painted such a clear picture of the most important goals. If you pick up on this, you can continue and expand the visual metaphors, or include your own by later saying something like, I see what you mean. I'm glad we're focusing on the same vision here. Now this might not seem like much, but it's a powerful way to unconsciously signal that you speak the same language and even more than this, inhabit the same perceptual world as the other person. If you're not entirely clear which kind of predicate the person is using, it's no big deal. Simply prick your ears, there's an auditory one, to the kinds of metaphors they use, and repeat or expand on them rather than abruptly switching to a different metaphor. Way 3. Match and mirror internal communication cues. This one is a little less obvious, 
The voice in the body may be easier to notice at first glance, but have you ever simply felt that people have different energy levels from each other? The energy is about how active, energetic, and vibrant someone is, yes, but it can also be more subtle than this. Think of someone who is really good at doing impressions. They're able to so perfectly capture another person's personality, not just because they can mimic their voice and mannerisms, but also because somehow they can put all these things together and portray the person's deeper essence. Noticing this essence takes practice, but at first, try to simply pay attention to how people are taking up space, how they're breathing, and the aggregate of all their expressions, language, posture, appearance, comes across. Reflecting someone's essence may take a special touch, but you'd be surprised at how instantly you can create camaraderie if you can do so. If ever you're with someone and you just click, try to see things from the other side and ask, what the other person did to make you feel that communication and connection were so easy with them. Chances are it's mirroring. Here's a little trick you can try not just to build rapport, but to test whether you're getting anywhere in that goal. Step 1. Pay attention to their internal or external communication cues, or their voice or language. Step 2. Match or mirror subtly on just one or two aspects. Step three. After a while, match them on some other aspect. Step four. Finally, do something different. For example, if you've been mirroring a low and slow tone of voice, plus crossed legs, suddenly change up your voice and speak louder and more quickly or uncross your legs and cross your arms instead. Step 5. Now observe. Did they follow suit and mirror you? If so, congratulations. You've likely established rapport. If not, no problem. There's still time. As you get better at matching and mirroring, and conversation in general, you can start experimenting with leading interactions with certain behaviors rather than just following the other person's lead. This way you can take charge of conversations and shape them in a positive direction, fostering connection and understanding, usually without the other person even knowing it. Here's another trick you can try once you get the hang of reading other people's communication cues. Step 1. Think of someone you have an excellent rapport with and try to feel what it feels like when you're around that person. Really recreate that experience in your body, heart, and mind. Step 2. Consciously try to summon up that same feeling in yourself right now, imagining it expanding through your body. For example, Maybe with a very good friend, you feel expansive, you're quick to smile, and you lean forward ever so slightly. Maybe you feel ultra-relaxed and warm. Whatever the sensation is, 
Imagine that it's surrounding you like an aura. Then, let it guide how you behave, think, feel, and move in the moment. Step 3. Project the feeling toward the person you're with, and imagine that this amazing aura is flowing around them too. This technique is taking a reverse perspective on mirroring, since you are the one who is going first, and inviting others to mirror and match you. If you master those good, happy vibes, don't be surprised if people suddenly seem very willing to be drawn in. Way 4. Match on content. Basically, seek common ground. If people like people who are like them, then rapport is, in some ways, just a matter of finding how you're like the person in front of you. Potential areas of common ground include your history and background, such as school, hometown, past jobs, shared connections. Personal values, such as family, hard work, creativity, learning, etc. Core beliefs about the world. Emotional state, both current and more generally in life. Style. Accent, ways of speaking and verbal idiosyncrasies. Hobbies. Shared experiences. Degree of formality. For example, do they use slang and swear words? Or are they very correct, polite, and articulate? Convention, class, age, or generation? Personality differences. For example, some people bond over being flippant, quirky, serious-minded, poetic, spiritually inclined, straight-laced, mischievous, etc., but people can also differ in their focus on the bigger picture versus the details, the emotional versus the factual content of a conversation, or the overall volume of information they're comfortable exchanging. Way 5. Chunking One final way to establish effortless rapport is something you might not have considered before, carefully moderating the questions you ask people to control the level of detail of information you get. There are two different modes we can adopt any time we ask someone a question. Chunking down is about diving down into details and going from the general to the specific. Questions that chunk down give more color, depth, and richness to the conversation. However, if you stay too long mired in the details, the conversation can quickly get lost, overwhelmed, or even boring. We ask a chunking down question every time we want to learn more, and when we do so, we build rapport, since we're showing interest in the real nitty-gritty of what we're told. For example, we could ask, how exactly did that happen? Tell me more about XYZ. Why did this specific thing happen? Chunking up goes in the other direction, from the specific to the general. We ask a question that leads us to see the bigger picture and overarching patterns in the broader view, i.e., 
a model that fits all the smaller details inside it. When we ask questions in this mode, we're showing that we are paying attention and processing and synthesizing what we're told, which is a different way to build rapport. For example, we could ask, how does this tie into this other idea we spoke about, XYZ? What do all of these details mean? What's the pattern here? What does this thing connect to? During conversations, it's not really a matter of which question mode is best, but rather keeping things varied. Imagine you're zooming in and out. First, drilling down to learn more about the most interesting details, then coming up for air and getting a broader view. Not only will such a conversation feel like it flows more naturally and enjoyably, your dynamic interest in what you're being told will create a sense of rapport with the other person. At the very least, simply avoid being in one mode for too long. So, for example, if you notice that you've asked five chunking up questions in a row, be aware that you may be alienating the other person in overly abstract or aloof hypotheticals. Create balance by asking a detailed question, which will bring in some immediacy and intimacy. Similarly, if you notice the conversation is feeling a little mired in one detail after another, for example, those conversations where people lose a narrative thread because they dwell too long on the minute but insignificant details of who said what and when. Then pause, zoom out, and get a broader view of where you are. You might say something like, So all in all, it seems like yesterday was a pretty crazy day, huh? Expressing without speaking. How do you read people's nonverbal communication? Words are not the only things that carry meaning. Appearance, objects, sound, fragrance, and even space all have socially shared significance. Communication, therefore, includes expressions of the entire body, movement, gesture, physical orientation, and a range of paralinguistic cues already discussed, such as voice pitch, volume, and intonation. Proximity, color, even time, almost anything can serve as a carrier of meaning and therefore be used in human communication. How to read microexpressions. A microexpression is a quick, just 0.5 to 4 seconds, and involuntary facial expression produced when experiencing an emotion. Micro-expressions are genuine, meaning they cannot be faked or concealed, and this makes them an ideal behavior to observe when with other people. The reasoning is that if you can actually understand the emotional state of the person in front of you, communication automatically becomes easier, more direct, and more real. It's possible that you are already able to read micro-expressions, but do so unconsciously. Have you ever spoken to someone, and even though they said all the right things and appeared to be smiling, you still got a gut feeling that they were upset? 
you might have come to this conclusion because your unconscious mind noticed the genuine micro-expression of anger and knew that this revealed the true feeling. What we might do unconsciously can be done with more deliberation and practice. Basically, the seven primary human emotions come from universal physiological responses to the environment. Microexpressions are quicker, more subtle versions of the more obvious macroexpressions you're already familiar with. As you read the following descriptions, try to mirror and match them and see how quickly you start to feel the emotion they represent. Surprise. Raised and curved eyebrows. Stretched skin below the brow. Horizontal wrinkles across the forehead. Eyelids open, with the white of the eye showing all around the iris. Jaw open and teeth parted, but without tension in the mouth. Fear. Eyebrows raised and knotted together. Forehead wrinkled in the center and not straight across. Upper eyelid raised, with lower lid also tense and drawn up. Eyes show white above the iris but not below it. Mouth open, with lips slightly tense or stretched back. Disgust. Eyes narrowed, upper lip lifted. Upper teeth potentially exposed, nose wrinkled, cheeks raised. Anger. Eyebrows lowered and pulled together. Vertical lines between the eyebrows. Lower lip tightened. Eyes staring or bulging. Lips can be pursed, corners down, or in a square shape as if shouting. Nostrils may be widened. Lower jaw juts forward. Happiness. Corners of the lips pulled back and up. Mouth may or may not be parted, teeth shown. A wrinkle appears from outer nose to upper lip. Cheeks raised. Lower eyelid may wrinkle or tighten a little. Crow's feet appear at the corners of the eyes. Sadness. Inner corners of eyebrows drawn in and up. Corner of the lips drawn down. Jaw comes up. Lower lip pouts. Contempt or hate. Fairly neutral expression. One side of the mouth raised. Noticing micro-expressions is only the beginning. What do you do with your observations? Well, there are two possibilities. One. The micro-expression aligns with what is being said, in which case, there is additional information and body language to add dimension to what is being communicated to you. Two, or, the micro-expression, in fact, contradicts what is being said. In this case, you can assume that the person is concealing something, or flat-out deceiving you or themselves or else they are conflicted and wearing a kind of mask. But again, this simply adds more data to your reading of them. Posture and Body Orientation People's postures can reveal a great deal about them. 
Have you ever failed to comprehend what the other person was truly thinking when you were texting them and, as a result, had an awkward misunderstanding? This probably happened because an important channel of information was closed off to you both. The nonverbal body language cues that would have allowed you to fine-tune your conversation. Let's revisit the idea of open and closed body posture. Rather than taking any single action in isolation, crossed arms mean you're angry, a toe pointing toward the door means you want to run away, and so on, observe the entire body as one unit. An open posture portrays friendliness, receptivity, and positivity. The feet are spread wide, and the palms of your hands are exposed and facing outward or visible. It's easy to see if someone's overall demeanor is communicating openness, but it's just as important to be self-aware and make sure that you are also communicating the right message with open postural language. Keep a straight spine with your head lifted. Open the chest and relax the shoulders down. Loosen your facial features and turn your entire body to face the other person. A closed posture portrays boredom, hostility, or detachment. The impression is one of tension and tightness. Arms and legs may be crossed. The features of the face will be tight, clenched, or pulled. Hands will be closed or grasping, and the body will either seem to be hunched or crumpled in upon itself, or else stiff and immobile, perhaps with shoulders held too high. Many so-called body language experts will go into great detail about what this or that tiny movement or gesture means, but this is usually unnecessary. You can achieve an incredible amount of insight into the person in front of you by simply asking whether they are open or closed, and, further, whether their posture aligns with their verbal expression or contradicts it. Reading body language is not a foolproof science, but rather a way to collect observations and seek out patterns. There are two rules to effective body language reading. One, no single detail is decisive and conclusive. Two, consider every observation against a baseline. For example, if you notice that someone's arms are crossed, you'd be wrong to conclude solely based on this observation that they are angry or closed off. Perhaps it's winter and they're simply cold. This is why you need to consider context and a range of observations, seeking repeated patterns rather than just a single isolated behavior. If they're scowling, crossing their arms, and turning away from you, the conclusion that they're angry holds more weight. Imagine that you one day receive a warm hug and a big smile from someone you've just met. Are they coming on to you? Don't assume they are until you know what their baseline is, i.e., what is normal for them. Notice that they hug and smile at everyone all the time, and your observations suddenly don't imply flirtatiousness anymore. Eye contact. 
The eyes are such an important and expressive part of the human body that they get classed as a form of communication all their own, not to mention assumed to be the windows to the soul and one of the focal points, there's a visual predicate right there, of love poetry the world over. First things first, eye contact in itself is neither good nor bad. Rather, it's a question of how you make it, when, and why. More is not always better. When you're making eye contact with someone you've just met and don't know very well, the mere act of lingering your gaze on theirs for slightly longer than is comfortable is a courageous way to signal that you are wanting to up the intensity and get to know the person a little better. If they match and mirror this eye contact, consider that your message has been heard and the response is broadly positive. Better eye contact skills will reap benefits in the workplace, will make you a better public speaker, will help you smooth over conflicts, and will make you appear more charismatic to the opposite sex. In a study led by Dr. Arthur Aaron, men and women were put into opposite sex pairs and asked to look into each other's eyes for two minutes straight. These couples later reported feelings of attraction, affection, and even love for the people they originally met as strangers. Surprisingly, one of the couples even married. So the eyes are powerful communicators. Eye contact can create intimacy and intensity. But too much can be disastrous. Whatever you do, you don't want your eye contact to be inappropriate or unwelcome. Don't stare at people. If you're looking at them and they look away to avoid your gaze and then return their gaze and you're still looking at them, this will feel intrusive and even violating to them. In his book, The Power of Eye Contact, psychologist Michael Ellsberg explains, In order for eye contact to feel good, one person cannot impose his visual will on another it is a shared experience. Perhaps eyes meet only for a second at first. One partner then tests the waters and tries a few seconds. And when that is met warmly, the pair can begin ramping up the eye contact together until they are locked in a beautiful dance of eyes and gazes. A good rule of thumb is to be brave and initiate eye contact. But... After two unsuccessful attempts to catch their eye, stop. Be mindful of the rest of your body language and moderate yourself. Eye contact plus leaning back may make the intimacy a little more comfortable, whereas eye contact and close proximity and intense language can be overwhelming. Another good idea is to take frequent pauses. A little eye contact goes a long way. Rest your gaze elsewhere for a while. Look to the side, not down. Or try career expert Kara Ronan's triangle technique to cut potential awkwardness. 1. Draw an imaginary inverted triangle on the other person's face around their eyes and mouth. 2. During the conversation, Change your gaze every 5 to 10 seconds from one point on the triangle to another. 
This will make you look interested and engrossed in the conversation without coming across as creepy. Paralinguistics As you become a more active speaker and listener, increasing your awareness of the subtle nuances of verbal communication can contribute significantly to the quality of the conversation you have with others. This awareness will also promote a deeper understanding of and connection with those around you. When you speak, you expose a great deal about yourself, much of which frequently has nothing at all to do with the words you are using. The term paralinguistics refers to the study of voice tone, volume, inflection, and pitch, and other components of nonverbal vocal communication that we've already briefly explored. Pay attention to your own voice and its function. It takes effort and practice to become a comfortable, conscious speaker. Think about how much of an impact your vocal inflection can have on the interpretation of what you're saying. It's possible to communicate either extreme happiness or else anger and contempt while using the very same words. How people deliver their words is as important as the words themselves. Become aware both of what you are communicating as well as what others are communicating with you, and your powers of communication will strengthen enormously. The Four P's of Voice Imagine that speaking is like a train ride. Peaks and valleys are more exciting and adventurous while flat, unchanging terrain is not. Try to vary your speed and speak so as to include peaks, valleys, flat terrains, and pauses. Likewise, listen to the landscape of other people's speech and see what it tells you about their state of mind and the message they're sharing beyond the words they use. 1. Power or Projection how loud or soft you speak. Modify your voice projection and speak loudly if you're addressing more people. A confident speaker has good projection. Low projections make listeners lean forward to listen. When telling a secret or wanting people to come closer to you, employ low projection. 2. Pace. How fast or how slowly you speak. Quick speech implies nervousness, energy, enthusiasm, force, or even fear. Slow speech can convey calmness and gravity, or else be boring. Be animated, and vary the speed of your speech depending on the effect you want it to have on others. 3. Pitch, high or low. Pitch conveys emotion. High pitch reflects warmth, happiness, surprise, or excitement. Low pitch expresses power, relaxation, aggression, or sadness. 4. Pause. Quiet moments bring emphasis or allow listeners to absorb and process. Poor communicators think that a pause is asking to be interrupted or an admission that you forgot what you were saying. But skilled conversationalists know that pauses are powerful. 
They use them to add significance to their words and pace themselves, keeping their listeners on board with what they're saying. Advanced speakers use a pause to optimize their speech's impact on their audience. How to improve your vocal variety. So, how do you know whether to pause or not? How do you know when to talk more quickly or loudly or with a higher pitch? Well, imagine that all the shades and nuances available in your voice are like colors in a palette. Whatever you're communicating, you can paint a more powerful picture for the other person if you're using a full, rich palette of colors. Vocal variety is a little like being physically flexible and fit. It means we are familiar with and comfortable using the full range of our voice's potential. And like physical fitness, we can train this variety. Here are a few ideas. Before you socialize, literally warm up your vocal cords, like an actor before a rehearsal. Massage your cheeks and jaw, and practice saying ma-ma-ma-ma and wah-wah-wah-wah sounds, or do lip trills where you forcefully blow raspberries by expelling a stream of air through pursed lips. This develops both breath and vocal control. Practice diaphragm breathing. Place one hand on your belly and one on your chest, and take deep breaths so that only your belly hand rises. After a few breaths, see if you can speak a long, slow sentence on one full belly breath. Play around with what it feels like to control this stream of air so that your voice is calm and measured. Pick a random passage of text. Children's storybooks are great for this. And read through the passage. First in a dull monotone, then read through it again, trying to add as much color as possible. Change your pitch, pacing, tone. Be dramatic. Interactions can be awkward at first simply because you're using vocal muscles that are not warmed up. Warm up this way and you'll feel more vocally limber when you next enter a conversation. If you find that your pitch gets uncomfortably high or low, or that you are often breathless or struggle to moderate volume, consider taking up singing to help improve your vocal mastery. Even chanting can help. An alternative is to take up improv classes or learn to do a little acting. When you think of your voice as an expressive and artistic tool, you become far more aware of its power and how you can use this power according to your own ends. The irony is that the better you are able to master and control your own voice, and the more self-awareness you have around your voice, the better you will become at hearing other people's voices in three dimensions. You'll notice the breathless or choked quality in a friend's speech and understand that they're nervous. You'll notice the subtle change in pitch that signals someone's rising excitement and know exactly how to match them to show your synchrony and support for that excitement. Communication is not just vocal, but that doesn't mean that the voice isn't an extremely powerful and flexible tool that lets you communicate anything and everything.
Summary The best mindset to adopt in order to become a better communicator is the one that will best allow you to connect, meet your needs, solve problems, and express yourself. Begin by asking yourself what your default communication style is. Aggressive? Passive-aggressive? Or manipulative? None of these styles actually achieves the ultimate goal of communication, however. The way you communicate is a choice. Assertive communication is the ability to express needs, wants, thoughts, and feelings directly without disrespecting or controlling others. Mature conversationalists are self-controlled, balanced, relaxed, open, and respectful. Communicating well is simple and easy, but we need to remove the formidable psychological barriers that stand in the way. With awareness, we can remove them and improve our communication skills. Barriers to good conversation include assumptions, strong negative emotions like anger and aggression, which inspire defensiveness, preconceived ideas and prejudice, fear, inflexibility and a need to control, premature evaluation and judgment, and other negative conversational habits like interrupting or one-upping. Good conversation is, firstly, about the degree of concordance, harmony, and synchronicity between you and the person you're talking to, i.e., rapport. We can increase rapport by mirroring and matching both nonverbal and verbal expression. This can be done with internal and external cues, voice and language, content, and chunking style, i.e., up or down. When reading someone's body language, pay attention to micro-expressions, their overall posture and orientation in space, as well as their degree of eye contact. Paralinguistics refers to information carried in the tone, pace, pitch, etc. of the voice. Think in terms of overall openness or closedness, but remember that no single detail is decisive and conclusive, and that observations should always be compared against a baseline. This has been Conversation Skills Training How to Build Relationships, Navigate Any Situation, and Talk to Anyone. Written by Patrick King, narrated by Russell Newton. Copyright 2023 by Patrick King. Production copyright by Patrick King.